HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet and 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. It's brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand, look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Bob Valgenti, standing in for Coral Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, whose most recent issue is entirely devoted to COVID dispatches. In it, authors from around the world offer short, intimate portraits of early responses to the food crises of this pandemic. For this podcast series, hosts from the journal's editorial collective are joined by some of the featured authors to share their stories and to hear how things have progressed since their original submissions in March and April of 2020. My guest this week is Dr. Somya Gupta, whose essay, Lockdown Destitution, Delhi, March 2020, appears in our most recent issue of Gastronomica. Dr. Gupta is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Delhi, teaching at Janki Devi Memorial College. Her specialization is on modern Indian history, and she has a PhD on Kanpur, an industrial city in northern India. Her current research focuses on the social history of cooking in North India, and in particular, on the Hindi cookbooks. She has been awarded an Indo-Japanese Bilateral Collaboration Grant, along with Riho Isaka of the Tokyo University, for researching ideas of food and body in India from medieval to contemporary times. And she is also co-investigator for the AHRC GCRF project on forgotten foods, led by Siobhan Hurley of the University of Sheffield. She has public book 
She has published book chapters and journal articles on the partition of India and North Indian foodways and is preparing her monograph on Kampur for publication. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me. So let's start off um, traveling back in time, if you will, to March of 2020 when this all began. As a historian and at this historical moment, uh, what inspired you to document this particular moment of the pandemic? Uh, my submission to Gastronomica was uh, more of a gut reaction to the, you know, this absolutely strange situation that was unfolding around us, and to the, you know, absolutely sudden destitution that it uh, brought in India. Uh, and this destitution, it was very clear right from the beginning, was induced as much by state policies as by the epidemic. You know, so I, uh, when, when uh, this uh, uh, this uh, call came, I was at that moment, uh, you know, thinking about and uh, talking to a lot of my students, you know, and who belong to poorer families. I teach in a public university. You know, and they come from uh, families which were usually the underclass, uh, the laboring poor of the city of Delhi. Uh, so, you know, it was uh, it was that one week uh, of the first lockdown in India, which started in March, on March 24. Uh, you know, that one week laid bare all the iniquities that were hidden under the cosmopolitan gloss of Delhi. So it was, you know, that moment which just uh, led me to write that piece. Right. And, you know, this is a, in many ways a common theme we've seen across the world, how the pandemic has exposed uh, the the inequities and some of the uh, social issues that had been uh, there all along under the service, under the surface. Um, but for you especially, um, was it this impending humanitarian crisis as it was unfolding at that moment, you know, far beyond uh, just what the disease was was going to produce. Um, was this what gave you that that initial reaction, made you see quite quickly that this was going to be, uh, you know, a rather uh, m- momentous problem? Yes, because, you know, uh, as I told you, I teach in a public university, I teach undergraduate students, and many of these students were long, first generation learners. So, you know, uh, as we were battling uh, this pandemic and at that moment, it was not very sure whether we are going to go online or how we are going to do all around us. I was getting these calls from students whose parents were losing job and they were, they, you know, they were calling me to say we are making the trek home, going back. And so, you know, it, it was very evident that uh, this kind of an absolute uh, destitution which had been forced upon people when actually nobody knew what is going to be the, you know, how it's going to pan out the whole uh, pandemic. Uh, in fact, people did not even know at that point in India that, you know, what is happening around us because just uh, uh, we, we had had elections in Delhi and, uh, uh, you know, those were, uh, they were uh, there were a lot of protests that were happening at, just before that. So this was very new and it was completely forced. And as, as, as uh, somebody working with, young students, somebody teaching history, modern Indian history, it just completely uh, dawned upon us that we are living through a time which is going, which is extremely distressful and uh, uh, is, you know, going to be difficult for, uh, for everybody around us. 
And I think what you captured rather quite nicely in your dispatch is both the scope of the unfolding situation and how vast it was given particularly the population in India, but that you also chose to frame the essay from the perspective of one individual. So with that in mind, uh, perhaps it would be be a good thing for you to share your dispatch with us. Yes, of course. Lockdown Destitution, Delhi, March 2020. In a maximal response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Indian government declared a national lockdown on March 24, 2020. As the lockdown unfolded over the next week, Reema, a distraught Delhi University student, called her teacher. She wanted assistance in organizing food rations in her neighborhood in Ranibagh, a lower-class colony in East Delhi. Her reasonably comfortable family had helped some people, but the numbers continued to increase, as were travelled of Reema's effort to help her neighbours. Migrant labourers and daily wage workers in the neighbourhood dropped their phone numbers on chits of paper through her window. These mobile phone numbers were silent inscriptions of their existence and of their hunger, a veritable SOS call from a sinking ship. Soon, there were about 150 number chits floating around. Every number represented a family, potentially five to seven famished mouths with no recourse to food or succor. Even though the state government of Delhi had started soup kitchens in municipal schools and night shelters, Reema was concerned about overcrowding, mindful of the medical directive of social distancing to flatten the curve of the virus. But social distance was a privilege that the poor could little afford. Moreover, among those desperately thronging her house were pregnant women, people with disabled children or old parents, and people who were unlikely to be successful in the crowded melee around the food charities. These were working-class families that formed the underbelly of the great cosmopolitan city of Delhi. Their ferried noodle carts and dumpling stalls worked as delivery boys, or were employed as maids and cooks in the neighbouring middle-class apartment blocks. Most of them were, ironically, in the business of food. Those who had a daily relationship with food were now most distanced from it. For these working-class people who valued their labour, charity was dehumanising. Hunger, in all its rawness, propelled the great migration out of the city. With no work and little hope, the village they all had left behind beckoned to them. The village has the farms, the field that will give us food. This had been the overwhelming refrain from the scores of migrant workers who are walking back home. As one said, home is where you go back to, where there is food. It has taken a pandemic to dent the victorious narrative of capitalism and its talk of progress, development, and plenty. There is no way of evading the fact that the lockdown imposed by the central government, though necessary, was almost totally unplanned. There was no meeting of the cabinet. Even union ministers were not taken on board. Nor was there any consultation with state chief ministers who were left to fend for the states as they could. Whereas the government repatriated the corona-afflicted elites, The undiseased poor were denied trains and bus services to their homes. 
There was a four-hour window between the primetime announcement of the lockdown at 8 p.m. and when it went into effect at midnight. The result was panic buying and panic travel, all a result of panic governance. The government did announce that essential services and supply chains would remain open. However, no clear direction was given with regard to market linkages and supply chains of food provisioning. The result was thousands of stranded supply trucks loaded with goods struck on highways. They produced rotting. Almost 50% of the trucks were abandoned by the drivers and cleaners who joined the journey back to the village. Even when some commodities did reach the destinations, there, was no, there were no workers to unload them. Indeed, in various wholesale markets, wholesale markets where shops were ordered to stay open for eight hours, the traders closed the shutters in two and went home. Food aggregators like Grofers, Big Baskets and Amazon Mao that supply metropolitan middle classes were running at about 10% capacity due to the departure of informal labor. And those delivery persons who did venture out were brutally beaten by the police in blanket adherence to the order. Stories in the press and through that great communication channel of our age, WhatsApp, have progressively taken on the hues of the apocalyptic. There is increasing fatalism among India's poor laboring class who wonder whether the disease or hunger would get them first. Part of the invisible underclass running the cities, their exodus has made them perhaps more visible than at any other time. However, even though COVID-19 hitched a ride via the affluent, the police, uh, the poor are quickly labelled as potential carriers of disease. As a darkly humorous WhatsApp line had it, the ration cards, within quotes, are paying for the mistakes made by the passports. Beaten back from the borders of the cities, given a chemical wash before allowed entry into the small towns, the lucky ones who reach their villages have become a source of anxiety there. But as one of them put it, if one has to die, one should die at home. Back in Ranibagh, contribution arranged, a local grocer roped in, Reema decided to distribute dry rations for a week. The contribution per family would come to Rs 890, which the grocer subsidized to Rs 690, less than $10. Reema's efforts meant sucker for a week. The lockdown was to continue for another two. No one was sure how long the grocer's stores or middle-class charity would last. The future threatened to be diseased and hungry. Little wonder that the central government ordered a re-telecast of the 1980s devotional blockbusters, the Ramayana and Mahabharata, on national television, possibly hoping the gods would help people forget what it could not manage or mitigate. Thank you for sharing your dispatch with us. We are going to take a short break, and then we'll return to our interview with Dr. Somya Gupta. You are listening to Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, 
there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. And we're back. I'm Bob Valgenti, standing in for Cora Lee. My guest is Somia Gupta, who shared her essay, Lockdown Destitution, Delhi, March 2020, just before the break. So one of the questions that we've been asking of all of the writers of our dispatches has been to think about the degree to which things have changed since you wrote this. Uh, This was written all the way back in March of this year, and undoubtedly a lot has changed both in India and across the globe. So I'm wondering if you could maybe uh, walk us through a few of the changes, maybe starting with the way that you begin the essay, which is talking about a student who's trying to do something uh, in the face of the pandemic. So at that personal level, for maybe some of the students that you work with, uh, or perhaps uh, others that uh, you come in contact with, how has the day-to-day life of the pandemic uh, changed since that time? Uh, actually, there there has been, you know, inter. There, I can I can figure on two kinds of changes. One is, you know, if you see, the lockdowns have now progressively been lifted, but uh, you know, so people are out on the streets. Uh, they are, uh, you know, many of them are going about their business. There are some restrictions in place, but uh, economic activity has started. Though economic distress is here to stay because most people have lost jobs and especially the working classes have lost more than, you know, the middle classes uh, in India. Now, as far as the students are concerned, you know, from where I started the story uh, uh, and as we as educators, as we are grappling with uh, teaching online and they are grappling with studying online, the stark reality of the digital divide is there to stare at us. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, usually there is in uh, usually there is only one smartphone with a lot of my students and very very limited amount of data, uh, and this is one smartphone in a family. Uh, you know, so it's a very scary scenario. There are so many students, especially women students, who are forced to give up on college education, uh, and many more who will not be able to enter the university in the coming years. So uh, this has been a particularly heavy toll of the uh, of the pandemic. Unfortunately, most of the solutions, uh, especially in in the universities that have come up, have been very managerial. You know, techno managerial. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we have to really redefine what we are teaching, reconfigure uh, the certainties of our syllabus and our pedagogy, because 
you know, uh, as I'm as I'm writing, uh, you know, as I'm speaking and as I'm teaching, we find that there is the the hopelessness of what is happening is slowly dawning over people. Even as, as I said, restrictions are easing, people are back on the roads. Uh, you know, we, a lot of entrepreneurial and uh, enterprises are starting, etc. But uh, there is there is this problem that is there. And the other thing I would like to flag is, you know, in India as elsewhere, a public university like Delhi University provides a new kind of socialization to the young. You make friends across the divides, whether it's class or caste or region. Uh, and young people who should have been looking uh, forward to college education to break out of the cycle of poverty, to dream of their new life, new aff- their new affinities, the, all of these have to, be, have to wait for some more time to come. And frankly, time is not a privilege the poor have. You know, so a lot of them are going uh, into employment, whatever local, uh, very seasonal jobs that they can manage because survival is at risk. Do you think there are, are particular measures that have been taken that have, rather than mitigate some of those divides, have actually exacerbated them? So, so choices whether they're at the level of the government or or somewhere below that, that have actually worsened some of the divides that are there? I think that the, the divides have been worse. For example, almost all schools and colleges have gone on with online teaching, which is one way to cope, but obviously very difficult uh, to, uh, you know, to participate in if you don't have the you know, if you don't have the devices let me give you just one example from exactly here the teachers of delhi universities uh, you know uh, and the student body all asked for the terminal year examinations to be uh, to not take place because our logic was that you know these were students we had evaluated for over five semesters and we can actually uh, you know calibrate their marks and promote them to the next uh, to you know basically give them the degrees uh, this was turned down by the uh, by the highest body, the University Grants Commission, as also by the courts. And what happened was then, you know, when we were doing online examination and when a lot of us were then evaluating, what we were evaluating was privilege. Because, uh, you know, you could make out that there were scripts in which the students, these were off, you know, uh, open book examinations which were done uh, sitting at homes. And uh, only those who had the requisite amount of data could actually take these examinations. So the university is forced to now again retake the exam, uh, redo the examinations for those who were not able to give it, precisely because of these problems. Similarly, you know, if you have uh, you have these uh, issues that are coming up uh, with traders, where, as I mentioned in my uh, dispatch, also. The provisioning, the you know, the supply chains were really not thought about. So it was very difficult for either the retail uh, sector to stand on its own feet. The neighborhood shops were at a, at the mercy of these rules, and uh, the implementation of rules was extremely draconian. You know, so you've had people beaten up on the roads uh, by the police if they were going out to buy milk for their children. Uh, there was no other way of, you know, and this was all done in the name of safety, security. Uh, the va- manner in which, you know, in fact, surveillance, uh, you know, there is a normalization of surveillance uh, due to this pandemic has been quite, uh, you know, 
been it has been noted here because uh, uh, this surveillance has come both from from the community from people from gated communities uh, who have erected these huge walls of separation exclusion and from the government's policies also so in the name of safety the authoritarian state in fact has you know strengthened the chains of surveillance all around yeah that certainly seems to be a concern in in many places and i wonder you used the phrase early on in your dispatch saying that the government seemed to be ruling by panic um and and would you say that since that time that the response by the government in particular whether it's in terms of surveillance or in terms of other moves that seem to seem to have strengthened some of the divides that it's gone from a sort of panic response to a more thought out but unfortunately uh perhaps somewhat more heavy-handed approach uh to to managing the population yes i think you're right absolutely right there because you know uh, as i said uh, surveillance is is progressively being normalized you know so the kind of opposition there would have been to these some of these technological surveillance is in fact uh, dealt with a very heavy hand and uh, uh, you know it is uh, it is now and the middle class it's not just the government now the you know the the middle classes have also got into it and we find that there are now multiple gated communities across the city and in most cities of india uh, at the moment we are actually seeing something else which is very um, uh, interesting it is that as you're going into the interior there the fear of the pandemic is somehow uh, decreasing mm-hmm. as the as the death rate is rising you know uh, uh, if you if you follow uh, indian politics you would find that one of the most uh, you know uh, populous states the state of bihar is going to have its provincial elections in about 3 days and as we are watching on a tv screen you know the election rallies have thousands and thousands of people all teeming without masks uh it is you know as if people have decided that you know there is since there's no no cure is coming uh the fear of the you know there's the social fear of the of the pandemic is also somehow they've put it behind themselves mm-hmm. and uh, we are still trying to read what is happening you know because a lot of them a lot of this uh, crowd comprises those who walked back trekked back to their homes uh, in march and they are now there without jobs without any uh, you know uh, uh, hope of getting a job and they are also participating in this political process uh, you know yeah. fearlessly so, yeah. in fact yeah and this was this is one of the one of the things i wanted to ask to follow up on your essay so with those with that population many of who made the trek back home they've been there for that extended period of time so it seems that there's perhaps some degree of fatigue some degree of complacency that comes just through the impulse to try and normalize things but this is all happening not just right before this this election but is has it also been the case if i'm not mis- mistaken that there's been a significant increase in the infection rate uh in india over the past uh month or so there has been a significant increase in the infection rate but you know uh, india being the the huge country it is it is uh, there are pockets there are still pockets in which the mm. death rate is not that high you know mm. 
So the infection rate is very high, but uh, somehow we have managed, uh, you know, uh, to keep the death rate uh, uh, under some kind of control. I wouldn't say a lot of control. Also, also, see, for the poor of India, I, I always think that dying is actually quite normal in many cases. You know, so there are there are deaths that are happening. Uh, you know, too dristous across board, and what has happened is with the kind of uh, destitution that has set in, the 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 fear of dying through this disease is is uh, somehow uh, you know being uh, being pushed back to the uh, pushed back in their in their daily uh, you know life etc. and. Uh, uh, so, which is you know, before the before the pandemic is ending medically. In fact, another very interesting thing that has happened is that the the government has made uh, giving you know actually politicized the vaccine. It is uh, the the incumbent government has said that if you vote for us, you know, once we come to power, we'll give you free vaccine. And uh, you can imagine that there is a lot of furore that is going on in India at the moment because you know I mean, the vaccine should be free for everybody. It should right. be part of the universal program. It should not be part of a political program of a particular uh, party, any party. Yeah, and this, you know, the the it seems to be an earmark of governments that are you know, perhaps managing this crisis in an ad hoc way, yes. as as we in the states have been subject to the same sort of politicization of the of the vaccine and of other aspects of this. But there's also a, an interesting historical link here that's connected to some of your research. So I was wondering if you could shed some light on how history and particularly uh, the history of India in dealing with plague has shed, you know, shed some extra light on perhaps what's going on now and how both individuals and groups and the government as a whole are, are responding to uh, the crisis. So, uh, I, as you mentioned in the beginning when you introduced me, I did a, you know, a PhD in, on a city in Kanpur. And this was an industrial city uh, uh, at the turn of the century. It was one of the biggest uh, cities manufacturing cloth. It was known as Manchester of the East. And, uh, you know, when the, when the, uh, at the turn of the century, when the 1895 to 97 there was the outbreak of plague in Bombay. And that, you know, at that point of time, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, these plague regulations were put in. And what happened was that uh, there was similar panic. You know, uh, in fact, the first uh, uh, sedition case in India uh, in colonial times was when the plague commissioner of Pune in Bombay uh, state was gunned down because of the plague regulations. Uh, this was in 1897. And uh, ultimately, what happened was that many workers from the cities of Bombay, Pune, Calcutta uh, rushed home, like today, uh, you know, rushed to the interiors, uh, to their own villages to escape the plague. And Kanpur was one such city in northern India. And here, the, the uh, you know, as the government put in the restrictions, uh, we find that there was in 1900, in, in April 1900, there was a riot. In fact, a series of riots that broke out precisely on the uh, on the on the on, on how draconian the the plague regulations were. And this happened when actually there were only three to six cases of plague in the city. 
just the idea and the news, you know, that uh, these kinds of regulations are going to come in and that these regulations are going to involve uh, segregation. You are going to be taken to plague huts, as they were called. Uh, women were going to be, uh, you know, subjected to uh, Western medical medical inspection, etc. Uh, we see that there was a there, there's a huge riot, and the seriousness of the riot was such that the colonial government in the United Provinces actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, took back most of the draconian provi- uh, draconian uh, provisions of the plague regulations. So. Uh, what happened then was that the plague surged even then, but the regulations were watered down. Uh, today in today in India, we are actually dealing with we, the, the plague law that is used is the same plague law. It's the it's the it's the Epidemic Diseases Act, eighteen ninety seven, and that is it's the same kind of laws that are put in place. Uh, the same restrictions, the same word, this word quarantine, you know, is coming ex- mm-hmm. totally from the plague restrictions uh, of 1897. And the government is using exactly the same law. So you can see these various possibilities. Uh, one possibility which I found very, very interesting was that, you know, about uh, two months into the, uh, into the pandemic now, uh, when it was pretty clear that governments or medicine do not have a cure. On television screens, we found news reports coming of people uh, worshipping the goddess Corona. And again, there is a parallel to the early 20th century where, you know, this kinds of, uh, you know, the, you would try to propitiate the goddess to deal with the disease because how does one deal with a disease that cannot be tamed by science and uh, here also you know when governments or doctors were unable to save lives whether it was in 1900 or 2020 we found that people were turning to gods uh, and there has been a long tradition of propitiating pathogen you know in india and there were stories uh, about for example, you know, the most famous of such goddesses was the Sheetala Mata. And Sheetala was the goddess that could cure and cause the smallpox. And earlier when, you know, when I was younger, when I was, even when I was studying, I had read about this and heard it from older people in the family. And frankly, usually the response was a very dismissive kind of snigger, you know, at these superstitions. And now, you know, this it has been a learning experience because we have these reports of women in interior worshipping the goddess Corona. So Corona Mata would be Mother Corona, you know, uh, which would be an exact translation. And mm. frankly, I think our snigger is tamed now. You know, the pandemic has taught us that uh, you have to, it, it is in fact, in some senses, a lesson in collective mentality for many of us who dismissed these ways of dealing with anxiety or fear, you know, when there is obviously no hope left. So it's been uh, quite interesting in that sense. Yeah, so the, the repetition of history yes. is oftentimes seen as something happening out there is perhaps this kind of collective psychological response yeah. to um, the desire to have, uh, you know, sort of a normal life back and to, to work even something as, as powerful as death back into the fabric of, of everyday life. I wonder if in all of those interesting similarities, you know, maybe as, as a way to also bring us to a close of, the, of this interview, 
if there's a if there's an important difference that you've seen uh, either in the comparison to the plague back at the turn of the 20th century uh, or in terms of some of the other historical responses to these types of uh, pandemics and uh, government measures so uh, one thing which is different from what uh, you know how how this disease was seen earlier and is seen now is that there is still, despite this kind of going back to an older remembered way of dealing with the pandemic, uh, which I just mentioned, there is a belief that ultimately science is going to cure. So, you know, some things have, have changed fundamentally. Uh, the fact that governments can, uh, you know, promise vaccine and the fact that people are looking forward to that is a very, very big change uh, from the earlier times. And I think there, it is there that you can read some kind of a hope that uh, things have changed and maybe there will be a change for the better, hopefully sooner than later. And perhaps on that optimistic note, uh, that's where we can uh, end this podcast. So Dr. Somya Gupta, Thank you so much for sharing your dispatch with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. The COVID Dispatches series is produced in partnership with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. More essays like the ones shared today can be found in issue 20.3, now available on the journal's University of California Press website. Meant to be eaten? Listeners can enjoy 30% off single print copies of this issue with the discount code GASTROAUG2020, all caps, all one word. And that offer is valid through June of 2021. Stay tuned to the Heritage Radio Network for more COVID dispatches on this podcast, Meant to be Eaten. I'm Bob Valgenti, and on behalf of the Gastronomica Editorial Collective, thanks for listening. Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.